All right, so a reminder, um, we've talked about the fact that uh, there's a process that we can show in terms of uh, the way in which there's a maturing that occurs in believers. And first of all, what's going to happen is we're going to find that there are uh, people who are brought in as visitors or who are acquaintances, and those become people that we can evangelize to, or if they're already Christians, to seek to disciple them if they have a very limited knowledge. If they have not been baptized, uh, they would enter into a process of catechesis. If they go through their catechism, and they would be unbaptized catechumens. And so they would be taught for some period. Um, if they are children that are raised in a covenant home, they'll obviously be already baptized. They'll be starting to be catechized as they grow older. Um, once a person is baptized, which can occur uh, very early in the process, they would start to be covenanted persons who are, who are being catechized, and they'd be catechized to the point of becoming communicant members. After that, there is a desire to see people established, in other words, made firm in a place where they can uh, be relied upon to recall the basic precepts of the faith. And so we spent time walking through what that would look like. And we talked about how getting somebody established in the faith as a child so that they could then be a young man, a soldier, so to speak, uh, is something that would make it so that somebody could start to do some external facing types of ministry. And my desire is to see us organized there. And so my desire is to see us adopt um, sort of the outline that we've walked through that goes through the basic information in the Shorter Catechism and also in the, um, in the, uh, the Ten Vows that we have for membership and to have those be things that could be drawn upon, uh, not to have to be able to prove them all, remember, but to simply be able to recall the information, to be able to present that in a basic way. And so to be able to present that information makes it so that you are ready to start to identify more error. So in that, in that stage as a young man, you are able to start assisting other people uh, in terms of external facing work or to be able to be training as an assistant to a deacon or to an elder. And this, the goal here is to train to fight. And so doing things like evangelism that's uh, in the street. Everybody should be evangelizing no matter how immature you are. If you have the opportunity to present the gospel to somebody, you can do that privately. But the idea of being sent to do so, doing street evangelism, doing intentional efforts to go uh, engage in some place, trying to uh, have some sort of an outward-facing um, intentional effort to go and engage the world or to go and engage false churches or cults, um, those are the kinds of things that we start to send people out intentionally to do, to seek to encourage people who are already thinking about religious things to consider the true religion, the reformed religion. And so I want to be able to encourage that, to be able to lead in that, to go out with you, and to be able to uh, start to engage there. And that becomes a useful training ground because you're dealing with people you don't know. The cost is lower and it makes it easier for you to engage in argumentation with people whom you do know. Now, you should, again, be a good witness in the sense of professing the true religion, doing good works, answering questions as they arise, seeking to have opportunities to engage with people in your private sphere. But at the same time, you will get better at that as you practice it. And so my hope is to get people through a testing um, in terms of this child phase, and to have people start going with me, with Deacon Schaefer, 
to start intentionally engaging at set times looking for people to talk to. Now, we're talking about this young man training, and this young man training would also have associated with it sort of skills stuff that is not necessary uh, for somebody to simply be a young man in the faith, but deacons are required to have a certain level of competency at various skills, to be useful to other people, to help them, to deal with things. And so we talk about man of valor training being the type of uh, of training that we would look at in terms of skill development. That is not being presented to you right now. It's something that will be developed. But I want to remind you that that man of valor training is associated with this sort of young man training. And then from there, after somebody's completed that first portion of the young man training, they would be qualified, having done that and the man of valor, to be a deacon, assuming they have the character qualifications. That's sort of the training, the preparation for that. And then there's this stage of being a father. And being a father in the faith, we would say there's this additional training of doctrine, um, and that would include being capable of defending the Reformed faith, our confessional standard, from the scriptures. And we talk about mighty man training. In other words, going not just from being a man of valor who's decisive, but also being skilled, being decisive and skilled. And so this man would have cosmion, or the Hebrew word kail. Being valor, we have this cosmion, the competency uh, portion of this. A man of valor, a man of might, both. So that's the big, huge, overarching piece. You see all the way from somebody start, first starting to be engaged with the Reformed faith to a process of how you would help people to move along. And my goal is to define for you what those things are that should be studied. And so this young man stage is giving you a more fleshed out version of the doctrine, right? That, the child studies the same things as the father, but it's a simplified form. Right? So the Shorter Catechism, the outline of the Shorter Catechism is the same information that's going to be talked about in the larger catechism. It's just far more summarized. It's smaller. It's a less detailed explanation. So what you see is a skeleton to something that's more fleshed out to something that's fully fleshed out. And that's what the, the process looks like. So we've talked, page two was about, you know, what is the young man, what are the goals of this document, uh, where young men already are, uh, what they need for us to help to mature them, what they need for us to equip them, um, and we talked about the key resources to look at, and I started by talking to you about the Bible and the beginning of Genesis in particular, so that the idea of the individual, the household, the church, and the state, and the origins of them all would be known, because those are the loci of work. Remember, the, the four covenant institutions, the individual, the household, the church, and the state, are the loci where work gets done. And then from there, Proverbs is the special companion of the young man. The book of Romans, with its doctrinal section and its practical section, and the book of John. These are excellent portions of Scripture to focus upon and to have a deeper knowledge and we talked last time about the need to start to be familiar with the story of the Bible. And so we spent a good amount of time talking about how Genesis through 2 Kings is a continuous history, and there's an emphasis in that continuous history on kingship and the idea of getting things done, and the history is focused upon the throne. And so it goes, for example, to the kings in Judah, but also to the kings of the northern tribes we see in that history. And the book of Matthew is focused upon Christ's kingship. 
And so I want you to be aware of that relationship in terms of the, sort of these kingly books. But then we also talked about the value of becoming familiar, less, less so than Genesis through 2 Kings, but having familiarity with the fact that there is this priestly history set, how Leviticus, First and Second Chronicles, and Ezra touch on things focused upon the worship and the priestly office, and the focus of the history in First and Second Chronicles is it's going to be focused upon the southern kingdom. It's going to be focused on Judah, where the true altar is, where the true temple is. So whereas the, the books that are kingly focus on the thrones and go back and forth between them, these priestly books focus on the temple, and the history is focused there in the south where the true temple was. Now, the book of Luke, Acts, First and Second Corinthians, and Hebrews are priestly books that focus on the change of administration. Luke focuses on the priesthood of Christ. Acts focuses on the change from the Levitical work to the work of deacons, for example, where you have the change of the mercy ministry from being focused in the Levites and in the temple to the diaconal ministry. And so you have significant changes there, but also the change in terms of the outward glory of how things are done. You have the transportability of the new covenant. First and Second Corinthians talks about how the church is the temple, and it focuses on the idea of the glory of God being on display in the church in its worship. And then the book of Hebrews explains in detail the change of administration and the relationship between the symbols. And the book of Psalms is a very priestly book that connects types and shadows to the reality and is made new by the fact that Christ has come and fulfilled those types and shadows. And so when we sing a new song, we're singing the Psalms made new by the fact that Christ has come. And the Psalter was not a book that had just been sitting around for thousands of years and then it needs to be replaced when Christ came. The Psalter was completed, was completed in the time of Ezra. Right as the Old Testament is being completed, it is a book that was prepared for the coming of the Messiah. And so we have this songbook that is put together for us in its final form just as the Old Testament is being completed. It's made ready for the New Covenant Church to help to connect to these types and shadows for us. And so, there are other books that are very useful for young men, but the problem is we cannot say that a young man should know all of these things because if he knows all these things, he's already a father. What we're saying is these are places where you begin to have familiarity. You are having habits of thought. There are grooves. You're identifying things. You're saying, this book is not totally foreign or alien to me. If I say the name of some book and you're not even sure if it's in the Bible or not, right, that would be an example of something that's not familiar to you. If I say the name of a book and you go, yes, I know where that book is. I have a basic idea of what its story is. And I, I think there are some key parts. And I don't really remember where some of those things are or the exact order. Okay, that's an example of you're starting to have some familiarity. If you could kind of give a really basic outline of the book, some of your favorite parts, you're pretty familiar with it. If you could give an outline and draw from what chapter things are and be able to use that book and explain its argument and argue from it and somebody quotes it and is twisting the context, you know that book deeply. That's what we want. What we want is a deep knowledge of the books of Scripture. But you, you don't get there overnight. There are some books that you will study repeatedly and you will quickly gain a, a deep knowledge of those books and there are other books that it will take longer for you to become aware of. And so the goal is to encourage you to become familiar with them and with their purpose. And 
as you go through books, as you become familiar with them, they become easier to use. Now, with the Psalter, a young man is becoming more familiar because his regular singing has been going on for a while. With the Psalter, you, you are being, you're singing loudly. You know that you're, you're called to give the fruit of the lips to the Lord. And so as you sing and you give the fruit of the lips as praise, the sacrifice of praise, and you become more familiar, you, you would be able, as a young man, you start to become able where there are some psalms that you could, if you were in a small group of persons, you could lead other people in singing them. Now, for heads of house, this becomes a responsibility faster because you've got to lead your family doing it so you, you get to there. But if you're, if you're even just becoming a little bit more mature, as you become more familiar, and all of a sudden nobody's there, and you have to do worship on your own with other people, so you're, you're the one leading, that idea of being familiar enough that you could lead other people in that. That's one of the desires that people would be there, that they could do so. Not the most competent leader of song ever, but a basic capability of leading others in a song that you're familiar with. That would be a hope that there are psalms where you're familiar enough. So go to page 5 of the outline. And what I want to talk to you about now is I want to expand your awareness of the structure of the Shorter Catechism. Because a young man would be very familiar with the Shorter Catechism. A young man would be very familiar with the Shorter Catechism. So look at page 5. This is what we want study for the child in. And the young man is in this place where he can begin to sort of catechize others using the Shorter Catechism. So the Shorter Catechism has three main sections. And for you to get the most basic skeleton of the Shorter Catechism, you need to know what these three main sections are. The first section is questions 1 through 38. Hey, okay, look at it. I've got it bold for you. It's the knowledge of God and his decrees. It's the knowledge of God and his decrees. So the knowledge of God and what he does is what's laid out there. Now, page 6, you look at questions 39 through 81. That's the law of God. 39 to 81. And then 82 to 107. Normally you hear me refer to that as the section that's about the outward and ordinary means of grace. Now, let me tell you a little secret. It also talks about sin, wrath, and curse just beforehand. Which helps you to want the means of grace because that's what the grace is helping you to deal with. The grace given to us for justification removes the wrath of God Sanctification removes curse. So now, let's think about this a little bit. Questions 1 through 38 are the most important for you to know. Why? Because it has the gospel. And I've given to you in blue highlights sort of the the main sections here. So this is the next level down. You know, the very beginning starts with the purpose of life. Then it goes to, uh, how do we know? That word from heaven. And then it gives us an organization of the whole rest of the book. What the Dutch call the double knowledge. Okay, the double knowledge. What's the double knowledge? The double knowledge is the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. The law of God helps us to see ourselves properly and helps us to see the holiness of God. The gospel explains to us the problems that arise from that, and it explains to us the solution to that. So the double knowledge, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. 
So look at question four defines what God is. And moves to talking about how there's one God, and then it moves to talking about the Trinity, the three persons. Okay, so that little collection there, the knowledge of God, you get the doctrine of the Trinity. Then it moves to the decrees of God, and here's another secret for you. Questions 7 through 38 are all about the decrees of God now. They're all about the decrees of God now. It's about what he does in history. And so, the decrees of God, all of God's decrees are either the work of creation or the work of providence. The work of creation is God's making all things of nothing in the space of six days. And all very good. And his providence is the eternal purpose that he has, his counsel of his will, whereby he foreordains whatsoever comes to pass for his glory. And so what you have is creation and providence as these two categories of the decree of God, the making of nothing and the governing and preserving of that which is made. Now inside of these, there are two major organizers for all of the stuff that's going to be talked about. Question 12, the covenant of works. Question 20, the covenant of grace. Everything from 12 to 19 is about the covenant of works and what we've earned out of it. 20 through 28 is about Christ's work as the second Adam in the covenant of grace and what he has earned out of it. His exaltation. And what he's earned for us, question 29 through 38, is about us partaking in the redemption accomplished by Christ. John Murray has a book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. The accomplishment of redemption is what Christ does objectively outside of us. The application of redemption is what the Holy Spirit does in you. It's an objective work, but for you, it's subjectively very important. It is how Christ's work gets applied to you. Effectual calling. The gift of faith. The instrumentality of faith to connect us to the righteousness of Christ and justification. All of that. Okay, So, so do you see, that is the whole main organization of that first section about the knowledge of God. Okay, we have purpose of life, how we know, the organization of the contents, knowledge of God, knowledge of self, defining God, God's decrees, covenant of works, covenant of grace, and partaking in the redemption accomplished by Christ. Those are the big sections. So then, there's the stuff where you start to get lost. The stuff where you start to go, there's a lot of questions in there. I don't know. There, the places where you might start to feel like you get lost is when you get into about question 12. And I hope that by seeing that the covenant of works and the covenant of grace and partaking in the redemption accomplished by Christ, that seeing those as three big columns will help the shorter catechism to seem more manageable to you. That there are subheads. And so then the subject matter is explaining to you how these things work. So, for example, in the covenant of works, you have question 12. The covenant of works, do this and live. We have the fall of Adam and the fact that 
he had Augustinian freedom. He had the ability to do what was good and also the ability to do what was evil. And according to the sovereign decree of God, Adam fell. And so we get this definition of sin in 14. We have the story given to us in very brief form in what it is that was that first sin, eating of the tree, rooted in unbelief. Question 16 explains for us that Adam represents not only himself, but all of his posterity by ordinary generation. The consequences of the fall and putting us into a state of sin and misery. And then that state of sin gets explained and the state of misery gets explained. You see how logical that is? Do you see how orderly that is? How how much that's just explaining the covenant of works. And when you when you go into the covenant of grace section, now we go into the, the second Adam as the second federal head. We have Christ as the God man. How does this work that he's God and man? Well the doctrine of the incarnation gets explained. Well, what does he do as a as the God man? Well he fills three offices in humiliation and exaltation. And then what happens? We get the definitions of the three offices and what he does in them. And we get his humiliation and his exaltation explained. It's just unpacking the covenant of grace. And then 29 tells us about, okay, Christ did all that. That's fantastic. What does that mean for you? Well, here's how that gets applied to you by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so how you partake in all of that stuff that he accomplished, all of the winnings that he has, the inheritance that he's obtained. So there's this explanation that it's applied to us by the redemption. The redemption accomplished is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. How does that work? He effectually calls us. He gives us faith. There are benefits that come from that. Justification, adoption, sanctification. There are additional connected benefits in this life. There are additional benefits that we get at death. And there are additional benefits that we get in the resurrection. This is the unpacking of the wages that Christ has earned for us. So that's what the Shorter Catechism, question 1 through 38, does. That is giving to you this extraordinary outline of the Christian religion. And so, captured there are all the things you hear me repeat over and over again. Five solas, tulip, trinity, incarnation, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. That's all there in those 38 questions. So, page 6. The next section tells us about the law of God. And it shows us that we, we need God's revealed will to know what good and evil is. It tells us that the law is broken into two tablets and gives us an introductory basis on the fact that we need to obey God because he's the God of everybody. He made everybody. He owns you. Secondly, for his church, he's in covenant, and so he owns us. And thirdly, he, for the elect, he bought us with the blood of God. And so, he owns us. So there's the triple obligation in the preface. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of bondage. Okay? The Lord, your God, out of bondage. And it's the triple obligation. 
And then questions 45 through 62 teach us about how we love God. First, second, third, and fourth commandments. And then 63 to 81 teaches us how we love our neighbor with the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth commandments. Right? So that's that. That's that big chunk. That's 39 to 81. The law of God explained. So then the last part coming out of the law talks to us about the fact that we are incapable of keeping the law. We're incapable of doing good in ourselves and that we are constantly transgressing the law. And so there's this increase of the awareness of guilt and it talks about how not every sin is the same. There are degrees of heinousness. But even so, what does the least of sin deserve? God's wrath and curse. So now, how do we escape the wrath and curse? And notice, what it doesn't say is, how is a man justified before God? Because what it lists out is a lot more than justification by faith alone. Justification was back in question 33. It's fantastic. It's a great question. But right here, it's saying, not only how do you escape the wrath of God, which is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but it's going through and it's going to say, we need to deal with the wrath of God and justification, and we also need to deal with curse. And so the outward and ordinary means of grace, what we're going to read here is not an explanation of just how do you get justified, but rather, how do you remove curse? How do you grow in the knowledge of God? How do you glorify God? How do you increase your possession of God? How do you increase your blessedness in the face of curse? And how do you make it so that you can spread the knowledge of God to others and see curse removed everywhere in the cosmos? That's what the outward and ordinary means of grace do. And so faith and repentance unto life, which are explained here, and the outward and ordinary means of grace are extended to all the ordinances of God. And then it gets explained, well, how do you use the word? Because the word is the principal ordinance. The sacraments, which have a special place, is a visible word. And prayer. So word, sacrament, prayer. And so especially early on, as a child in the faith, what you need to know is how to use the word well, how to use the sacraments well, and how to pray well. And other ordinances you will gain deeper knowledge of later. But these are the ones that we need to teach children to pick up. So the shorter catechism. My hope would be that you, as a young man, are quickly in a place where you know these major divisions and, and kind of know where these blue highlights are so that you could easily find the other stuff that fits underneath those. The child should quickly come to know the three big headings. Knowledge of God, the law, the means of grace. And then as you're growing in knowledge, you should be able, you should be more familiar, and you should basically know within a few questions where anything is, so you can easily get there quickly and you can explain stuff. And you, you you're getting used to explaining this document to other people. Okay, now four is the, the church covenant. We have ten vows in our church covenant. And the first five of them are about doctrine and the last five are about practice. And the content overlaps dramatically and in fact is, don't tell anybody, largely quotes of the shorter catechism. And so if that's the case, the content overlapping, 
The first one is, you know, do you accept the authority of Scripture? The next one is, do you think the Shorter Catechism is a good summary? The next one is the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Incarnation. And then we have guilt and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Does that sound familiar at all? And so the last five questions, we begin to have commitments about what you're supposed to pursue in this Christian life. Out of gratitude for grace given, I'm going to seek to do good works for the glory of God, broken into the three big categories of seeking to know God, acting according to the knowledge of God, and spreading the knowledge of God. And guess what? The next three vows are that. What are you going to do to seek the knowledge of God? What are you going to do to act according to the knowledge of God? What are you going to do to spread the knowledge of God? And then lastly, there's conflict resolution. There's submission, lawful submission, and we also have in there, remember, you swore to disobey unlawful commands. It's a fun one. You all had like a giddy look when you said that part or heard that part, right? So the submission to lawful authority, biblical conflict resolution for the goal of peace, purity, and unity in the truth. That's it. That's what our vows are organized as. So the goal there is to understand these things so you can walk people through them and you can basically recall what it is that you have sworn to do. So my hope is, is to help you to organize things because organization in buckets makes it so much easier to understand. They make it familiar. So then the young man, okay, the young man, look at number five. The young man will have read through the Westminster Standards and will be starting to build some familiarity with them. Now, the young man would be very familiar with the Shorter Catechism, but the young man would have read through the Confession of Faith, would have read through the larger Catechism, would have read through our Directory of Worship, our form of government, the Directory of Family Worship, and any of the clarifications and modifications we've adopted, which are on the next page. So, six is the rules of practice that are contained in those, and we have certain things that we've adopted that are not contained there. For example, look under C. We have adopted a modification to the Directory of Public Worship to have questions and answers by the men in the public assembly. We believe that there's scripture warrant for that. And we have adopted that as a thing to be added into what can lawfully be done in our public worship because we believe it's a part of the idea of what is the portion of the word and the holding accountable and the clearing things up. We also have added to the directory of public worship the ministry of the elders to pray for healing with the anointing of oil and the laying on of hands as is commanded in the book of James. Not because we believe that there's a continuation of the miraculous healing from the apostolic era, but because we don't believe that that ordinance is tied to the miraculous healing, but rather is tied to the office of elder as is explained in the book of James. And so it's not a healer, it is an elder who is commanded to do that. And so there's no reason to view that as having ceased. So we have those things. Those are our adopted modifications. Those are additions to the directory of public worship. Then when we talk about the form of Presbyterian church government, we have made explicit what heads of household get to vote on. The election of officers, the removal of officers, and a final vote on excommunication. 
Thirdly, there are, sorry, secondly there, there are three local voting bodies. The men, who are heads of house, which is made up of communicant member men in good standing who are age 20 and above. Those are the people that get to vote on those three things. Additionally, there's a diaconate, which is made up of elders and deacons, and there's a session made up only of elders. We have to deal with the principle of devolution of authority and the evolution of authority, and so it's important that you be aware of that, which is point five here, the principles of devolution and evolution. So, for example, right now, Deacon Schaefer and I are collapsed into the diaconate and the session working together, and so those meetings, though public, are collapsed. Okay, three. The process for selecting new officers involves this. The men of the congregation have the right to nominate officers, to test them publicly, and then to elect them. <coughs> Existing officers have the duty to test and then to ordain those men that are elected that are qualified. And it requires both keys, right? Hopefully this is old hat to you. Two keys to launch the nukes. Two keys to launch the nukes. The men have to elect. The officers have to ordain. Six, all elders have the authority to rule, teach, and exhort publicly, and to administer sacraments, and to lead the other biblical elements of worship. Deacon Schaefer is performing some of the biblical elements of public worship, because of our devolved state right now. So that's again a principle of devolution and evolution based upon the unsettledness of the church. Seven, the church must have officer training programs and not be dependent upon external universities or create what we think of as modern accredited universities as a part of the church. And we shouldn't seek the approval or ongoing funding of the state or other bodies external to the church for us to maintain our basic function of having officers. You can use those. They can be useful. They can be things that are used supplementary. It's a good thing to go out and hire tutors or hire a college professor to teach you Greek or Hebrew. That's great. But the church needs to be able to provide these things for the training of its own officers. So that's an outline of the doctrinal stuff related to our distinctives, our confessional standards. And in addition to that, last time we talked about the history of the Bible. The goal is to start to get a as a young man, you should have a basic idea of the outline of the history of the Bible. And so, I want to run you through that again. Why? Because although it was delightful last time, and I'm sure you all remember it in perfect detail, I do not. And I would like to be more familiar with it. And if, happenstantially, you become more familiar with the history of the Bible as a result, fantastic. And so, the consideration of the history of the Bible... Now you remember this. There are some huge events. We have about 4,000 B.C., the creation of the world. And you have the covenant of works with Adam. And then from there, you have the covenant of grace with Adam in Genesis 3. Those are all probably within a few days. Then you have the church being instituted there, right? So with creation, you have the individual and you have the household established. And then you have the church established in Genesis 3 with animal sacrifice. And you have the first excommunication in Genesis 4. And then the world gets filled with violence and there's no policeman to say, stop. But we don't have the state. So the earth gets filled with violence. The church is corrupted with intermarriage. And so you get to 2500 B.C. 
and there's the flood with Noah. This is the second administration of the covenant of grace, Noah. We've gotten through 1,500 years of world history, and we're at B. 1,500 years. That's 25% of the history of the world, right there. Then you go another 500 years, you get to Abraham. Job and Melchizedek are rolled around too. And so we have the third administration of the covenant of grace. We get Genesis 15, you have the covenant of grace. Genesis 17, you have circumcision given. Then you get to about 1500 B.C. and you get to Moses and the Exodus. Another 500 years. Another 500 years. Now, Moses is given a lot more detail. He's given the Passover. He's given the whole Levitical law. You've got all this stuff there. And that chunk of text, from all the stuff from Exodus to the end of Deuteronomy, remember, we have Moses dies. He's writing Deuteronomy. He falls over and finishes the last sentence. Right, Moses died. No, what happened? We have the continuous replacement of the prophets where one prophet finishes the book of the other. So the end of Deuteronomy is written by Joshua. Joshua has the same thing happens, and I died. Blah. Right, what happened? Well, somebody else wrote the end of Joshua. Right, so you have this continuous finishing off where you have the next prophet acknowledging the previous prophet, writing about the death of that prophet, and so you have this chain, this continuous chain of history going from Genesis through 2 Kings. So, 1400 B.C., Joshua is in the Promised Land, conquering. 1400 to 1000, you've got all the judges. And then you get to Saul and then to David. About 1000 B.C., Solomon builds the temple and writes the wisdom books. We've gotten through half of world history. Half of world history. So, think about that for a second. Covenant of grace with Adam. Covenant of grace with Abraham. Covenant of grace. Sorry. Covenant of grace with Adam. Covenant of grace with Noah. Covenant of grace with Abraham. Covenant of grace with Moses. Covenant of grace with David. These are the five big administrations that we've got. That's the old covenant. The Shorter Catechism has emphasized to you covenant of works, covenant of grace. And then understanding old covenant, new covenant inside of the covenant of grace. This helps you to understand the Bible and to see the outline. And so what we do, we look there. We've completed, we've received all of those administrations of the Old Covenant. And the year 1000 B.C. to 600 B.C. is the decline of Israel and the ups and downs of Judah. The decline of Israel and the ups and downs of Judah. So you read through. If you read, you know, first and second Samuel and first and second Kings, you're always, one king dies and you read about the next king and what are you looking for? And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Hooray! And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. No, lamentations. Right? And so those two things, that's we have this, this up and down. Well, in Israel, all of them do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And in Judah, they get seven that do what is right. So in Israel, they all do what's evil. In Judah, some of them do what is right. And so what we have is we find this process 
ends in 677 BC. The Assyrians come by, they destroy the northern tribes, they exile them, and the army of Sennacherib with 180,000 crack troops are outside of Jerusalem. They are besieging Jerusalem and they mock Yahweh and Hezekiah lays their mockery down on the altar of God and says, Lord, they mock you. Show yourself God. And God kills them all, except for King Sennacherib. And he wakes up with the bodies of 180,000 men and returns home. And who kills him? His own sons. A little bit less than 100 years later, Nebuchadnezzar comes and destroys Jerusalem. And we have the exile. The exile begins to be unwound when Cyrus the Great, Cyrus the Second, king of Persia, issues a decree in 537 BC to rebuild the temple and to rebuild Jerusalem. In 400, the Old Testament has been completed. Nehemiah or Malachi, one of the two, is the last book to be written. And remember, Nehemiah has a list of high priests. And the last high priest he writes about is the high priest that Josephus says met Alexander the Great at the gates of Jerusalem to intercede on behalf of the city that he would not destroy it. About 3 B.C., the Lord Jesus Christ is born into the world. About 30 A.D., He dies on the cross to pay for your sins. He is resurrected on the third day. He ascends. And at Pentecost, He sends Holy Spirit powers to the church. The New Testament is written. The Council of Jerusalem shows us the way that the international church deals with these large councils. And in 70 AD, the days of Messiah are ended. The Old Covenant is brought to a complete end. The apostolic era is over. The canon is closed. And we are in the New Covenant in a way that is not compromised with any of those things that were types and shadows that were passing away. Page 9, the kingdom of God begins powerfully to fill the earth. The post-millennial hope is being accomplished. The kingdom of grace is reigning. And so we talked about the different views of eschatology and why post-millennialism is true. We talked about some very brief reasons why the other views are false. Remember this, dispensationalism denies the structure of the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Classic premillennialism is going to deny that we are currently in the kingdom, in the sense of the covenant, the kingdom of grace, the, the millennium. Amillennialism is going to deny that we win here. So postmillennialism is going to assert that we win here. And we talked about some of the key verses for that. 
1 Corinthians 15 being one of the easiest ones to go through. The last enemy to be conquered is death, which means at the resurrection of the dead, that's the end of defeating the enemies. We are going through thousands of generations since the creation of the world, thousands of years since the ascension of Christ. Christ returns, the dead are raised, Satan rebels in the courtroom, Christ restrains the disorder, and the final judgment proceeds. The sheep and the elect angels enter the kingdom of glory. That's what we have looked forward to. This is the history of the world. How many times have you heard the meta-narrative of the Darwinists? There was a big bang. Nine billion years later, there was a rock called Earth. Four billion years later, there were Neanderthals and men, and they interbred. You've got this ridiculous story. You should have our story, the story of our people, the story that God has revealed in your mind. It's a great thing to know about American history, but do you know about the people that you should be identifying with more? The church? Well, i got church history in terms of the stuff in between here, the stuff that's not captured in the propositional revelation of God later. But right here, this is the story, this is the history that's been given to us infallibly in propositional revelation. So we know, we know that this history is a true history. And we know that we have a hope of success in the earth. And we know that there is a gradual work to be done to fill the earth with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. That's the basic story of our people. That's the basic plot line of what we still need to accomplish. And so a young man needs to know where his people have come from. And a young man needs to know where his people are going. And so my hope is that this is helpful to all of you to see the process that we want people to go through and to see that a young man understands his people to some extent and understands where we're going to some extent and will learn more and more to fight to defend it. So I stand open now for comments, questions, and objections from the voting members as with speaking rights.